You may be seated. I just realized that I didn't get mic'd up this morning, so I'm going to use this mic all, uh, all sermon. According to Greek mythology, Narcissus was a man who had achieved the perfection of beauty. People were obsessed with his appearance. Legend has it that women would run after him and beg to have him, and when they couldn't, they would actually kill themselves. Legend has it. And Narcissus was so arrogant that he looked down on these groupies with disdain. Now, when the goddess of revenge, Nemesis, heard about this, she decided to punish Narcissus. So how would she destroy this beautiful, arrogant man? Her tactic was subtle but deadly. On a day when Narcissus was hunting and was parched and thirsty, she led him to a pool, and after he'd had his fill of water, she encouraged him to look at his reflection in the water. Once he discovered how beautiful he was, he couldn't stop staring at himself for the rest of his life. And rather than filling him with happiness and satisfaction, this actually caused him to slowly despair of life itself. Because his desire for pleasure couldn't be realized with himself. And the myth has it that Narcissus couldn't find the satisfaction his heart longed for, so he committed suicide. And that was the destruction and the end of Nemesis, or of Narcissus. Nemesis knew what the serpent in the garden knew. That the greatest way to destroy someone is to keep them preoccupied with themselves. And this myth is where we get the word narcissism from. The dictionary says that to be a narcissist is to be someone who is marked by excessive admiration with oneself. To think that the world revolves around you. Do we have a problem with narcissism in our society today? It's hard to think of a word that better defines our society and our hearts, isn't it? We're obsessed with ourselves. And we're completely, shockingly unfulfilled. What are the results of self-centeredness and self-focus and excessive selfishness? Suicide rates, addiction rates, depression rates are all skyrocketing. The more we obsess with self, the further away we get from satisfaction and the closer we come to ruin. If we are to learn anything from narcissists, the Bible and our society today, it's this. Self does not satisfy self. We were created to find satisfaction in another, in the one who is truly the perfection of beauty, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the true God. And the way into this satisfaction is the way of repentance and humility. The way to find lasting pleasure is for proud narcissists like us 
to look away from ourselves to the God who satisfies us, to the God who actually delights in us. And this is the message of Zephaniah. Would you turn with me to Zephaniah chapter 3? Now, I know you're not all very familiar with Zephaniah. It's not the book that you would often go to, so I think we have the page number up there. Um, oh, I think it's 790. There we go. Zephaniah chapter 3, and as you are going to Zephaniah, let me set the scene of this book. It takes place back in 622 B.C., before Christ. It takes place under the, the good king, Josiah. And it's after the good king Josiah recovers the book of the law, and yet it's before the community renews their covenant to God. So if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that the, under the king Josiah, some wonderful things happened for the people of God. They renewed their covenant to him, and they, they came back to him, and it, it caused a widespread revival, a renewal in the community, and it was a, it was a wonderful time of, of, uh, of joy and, 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 and peace. If you want to know more about this time, you can read in 2 Kings 22 to 23. But it happens before that renewal. And Judah, at this point in time in 622, is filled with crooked leaders and violent streets. It's very much, uh, his contemporary was Habakkuk. So if you remember a couple of years, or maybe last year, we went through Habakkuk. It's, it's the same time as Habakkuk, Zephaniah is uh, prophesying in, he's preaching. And Zephaniah is saying to the people, things need to change, guys. Things have to change here, people. In chapter 1-6, this is a little bit of the landscape of the land. You hear what happens. God, uh, God's people are turning their backs on him. And it says in chapter 1, verse 6, neither, they neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. They're unmoved when it comes to God. They don't know him and they don't care to know him. If they don't smarten up, though, and sober up, Zephaniah is saying, you're going to be swept away into judgment, and the judgment is just around the corner. In chapter 2, verse 3, we get the central verse of this book, and it says this, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. You who do what he commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. My study Bible says Zephaniah motivates his audience with hope and dread as basic training for finding satisfaction in the Lord. There's hope and dread. Find satisfaction in the Lord. In chapter 3, we see beautiful promises of joy which come after judgment. At the end of this chapter, we see that God brings about worldwide change and and he satisfies his people with his presence and he actually takes delight in his people. Now, that's something to write home about. So let's start reading Zephaniah. We're going to read from chapter 3, verse 8 to 19 so you get a picture of what's going on here and then we're going to spend most of the morning just musing over 317. Zephaniah 3, verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. 
for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. Sounds like heaven. Verse 10, From beyond the rivers of Cush, modern-day Sudan, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I would remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. Heart change. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall they be found in their mouths a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need your Holy Spirit to open our hearts to be drawn into these promises. Father, I pray that your word would work deeply in our hearts and that we would leave knowing you personally and our hearts would be brought right back up into joy into your presence and that we would be ravished in you in Jesus name amen now as we approach chapter 3 verse 17 uh let me give you the key to open the meaning of this text, okay? You need to see this text, since we have the whole Bible, you need to see this text through two lenses. The lens of Jesus and the lens of our union, our being united, our being connected with him, okay? You must see this text this text was written hundreds of years before Christ, okay, uh, 622 BC. But since we have the whole Bible, we need to take it all into consideration. And it's clear in this text that it points to Jesus. 
all throughout. It hints that he will come, that he will save, and that he will be happy to love and sing over his people when he, brings, when he makes all things new. So, if you keep Jesus away from this text, it will be impossible to understand it. Okay? Jesus said in John 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that testify about me. They speak about Jesus all throughout. So, one, don't try to come to this text and understand it without Jesus. That's the first lens. Second lens, you can't personalize this text if you're not united to Christ. Another, another way of saying that is, this promise is only yours if you are, as the New Testament says, in Christ. Or, as we say, as a, if you are a Christian. So if you're not yet a Christian, this text is not your text yet. This promise is not yours yet. But God delights in us. So God delights in us only if we are united, if we're in his son, Jesus. Okay? And God from eternity has delighted in his son. And his delight flows down from his son to everyone who is connected to him. Which is how we can say words like, Jesus, which is how we can personalize words like this from Jesus. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Or another one, John 15, 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Union with Christ. If you don't love and believe in Jesus, if you're not connected to him, God doesn't delight in you yet. But here's the good news. God is full of compassion, full of pity towards rebels. He pulls people into his heart through verses like these. And he loves to run after runaway rebels and grab them and fall on their neck and kiss them and sing over them when they, when they return. So even if you're not in a relationship with Jesus, while this verse may not be yours yet, it's calling you in. Come. Come. And if you do come, God Almighty Himself will delight in you, and He will satisfy your heart in His love. So there's the invitation. It's wide open. Come. Now for those of us who call ourselves Christians, this beautiful text will challenge your faith but for a different reason that you might expect. The reason is because, as Martin Luther said, our greatest temptation is that we don't think we have a gracious God. And how many of us really believe that God actually delights in us? We need to get union with Christ because all throughout the week we give evidence that we're not so lovely, don't we? union with Christ. I mean, we aren't familiar even with this language that God delights in us. How often do we uh, slip into thinking that yeah, God likes us, but he doesn't uh, sorry, God loves us, but he doesn't like us. Or like the flower, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. We're not quite sure which one it lands on today. And why is it that we can't hold on to these truths and we can't personalize them. I think it's, at, it's because at the bottom of our hearts we're all Pharisees. We don't believe in grace. 
We don't believe in the free offer of the gospel, the good news of grace. So today I encourage all the Christians here to pray, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Personalize these truths. Bring them home. We need to come to this text with faith in Jesus and our union with him. Then this verse will explode on us. I assure you. We need the Holy Spirit to teach us the truth that God loves us, oh yes, and he likes us, yes, and he even delights in all of his people. Now, if you've heard all this before and you're bored with this theme right now, sitting around, staring at your phones, uh, your likely spiritual lightweights in this text is calling you to eat up. Listen up. Personalize this. Listen to what Michael Reeves says in his book, Rejoicing in Christ. Sometimes we find ourselves tiring of Jesus, stupidly imagining that we have, all, we have seen all there is to see and used up all the pleasure there is to be had in him. We get spiritually bored. But Jesus has satisfied the mind and heart of the infinite God for eternity. Our boredom is simple blindness. If the Father can be infinitely and eternally satisfied in Him, that is Jesus, then He must be overwhelmingly all-sufficient for us in every situation for eternity. So there's enough to be had in Jesus, friends. There's a feast to be had in Him. And if you're not satisfied in Jesus, He's not the problem. Your narcissism is. So look away from yourself now. Look away from yourself for a few minutes as we cruise into this text and satisfy your longings in Him. Now, I've just taken about 10 minutes to do an introduction, which is not my normal course. But I've been trying to line up this text so each verse can be laid, uh, can, can land fair and square on everybody's heart. And now for the rest of this morning, my goal is simple. I want to woo you to Jesus. I want to grab your hand and put it on his heart so that he would, you would know what it feels like for his heart to beat for you. Simple. I want to woo you to Jesus. And that'll snap the neck off your sinful pride and your narcissism. So I'm going to break, break this verse into five parts which show the different pictures of God delighting in us. First, notice in verse 17 of Zephaniah 3 that God delights to be with us. Verse 17, The Lord your God is in your midst. In 622 B.C., when this book was written, it was looking into the future when God would be with his people in a special, extraordinary way. And I think this verse is still looking into the future. And the verse says, The Lord your God. Picking up language of the covenant God who is committed to his people. The Lord is your God. In scripture, God frequently uses the image of marriage, the marriage covenant to talk about his covenant with his people. And in the New Testament, the same image is picked up and applied to the covenant union union between Christ the groom and his church, the bride. Marriage union. Covenant. 
And as Zephaniah 3 says, God's presence with his people meant his judgments are over. Their enemies were cleared out, and now they could live without fear of harm anymore. They were surrounded by the Lord of heaven and earth, and his presence ensured their security and their joy. And this promise will be fulfilled one day when God will actually delight in us, his people, who are united to Christ. He will actually commune with us in an open, special way. Amazingly in Scripture, God is not hesitant or embarrassed to be with his people. He actually delights to be with us. Read the Bible. This is the consistent story. Read John 3.16. This is the resounding message. He's interested. He loves. He cares for his people, the world. And ever since the garden, God is the one running after us in love. And foolishly, we turn our backs and hide from him. Yet the story of the Bible is a story of a beautiful king who is the perfection of beauty, who is deeply in love with his bride. And he moves heaven and earth to win her heart back so he can be her God and she can be his. And so he and her can be together forever. He delights to be with us. And for every one of us who have come into Jesus, this is the way it will always be. He will never leave us or abandon us. He's not done with us. If he is in us, he will be with us forever. In Revelation 21, 3-5, we're given a glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth, which I believe Zephaniah 3.17 is referring to. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, and he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. God delights to be with us. Now this is nutritious food for the hungry soul. And if you're a Christian, hear this. You're his, and he's yours. And there's no breaking that relationship. God says when we receive Jesus, the Holy Spirit is actually in us. He delights to be with us and in us. Now, if this God who satisfies and delights in us if this God who satisfies delights in us why are we trying to delight in anything but him if he truly satisfies why are we seeking to be satisfied in other stuff the lesser things nothing but he can satisfy you and me are we running and hiding right now Nothing but he can satisfy you. The Lord your God is with you, it says. Now this is a very uh, practical promise that is challenging. Listen to how Paul motivates the 
church in the city of Corinth to purity this way. Now, the Corinthians were a city that were uh, a people, a church that were gifted, very gifted, and yet pretty much spiritually stupid, right? They, they had all the gifts, but they were lacking love, which is like you didn't even start A on the ABCs, like you missed it. And, and they were just missing it all over the place. They, they didn't understand what it meant to be a Christian. And so Paul had these pretty severe letters to this church because they didn't understand the truth about who they were in Christ. And what does he use to, pure, to, 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 to encourage them to purity? Union with Christ. He says this, uh, What are you doing picking up prostitutes? This is my paraphrase. And acting as though your private life doesn't affect your connection with God. You say you're distant from God. Well, realize that God is with you even when you go into the private places. And you're living inconsistent lives because you forgot your body parts are actually connected to Jesus everywhere you go. You're literally members of Jesus. He's the head. You're his body. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6, 15 to 20. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commit, commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple, temple language, temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So we can see through Scripture from the garden onto the tabernacle in the wilderness, into the temple, and into Jesus Christ, and then into the Holy Spirit when he comes to be with his people. And then one day in the New Jerusalem, God delights to be with his people. And friends, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit within you. So glorify him even with your body. And as John Piper has said for decades, how do we glorify God? God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Yes. So satisfy your hearts with more God, more him. Now moving on, God not only delights to be with us and in us, he also delights to rescue us. Look at the next part of the verse. A mighty one who will save. Now we're picking up new, new imagery here. We're getting hints of... Uh, the battlefield, a mighty warrior. One uh, translation calls that mighty one, a mighty warrior conquering in battle. And the word translated mighty one here, or warrior, is the Hebrew word gibor, which alludes to one of God's names, El Gibor, right? El Gibor means the mighty God. So the mighty God will save his people. And scripture shows that this salvation comes through an extreme intense conflict. The rescue and victory comes through the descent of the woman as Genesis 3.15 promised. The offspring of the woman. And this descendant, sorry, the descendant, the offspring of the woman refers to Jesus who would crush the offspring of the serpent through his death and resurrection. 
there would be a conflict and he would save his people through this great massive battle through his death and resurrection. That ultimate battle between good and evil came to the climax when Jesus crushed the powers of darkness through his cross and resurrection. Through the cross and resurrection, he will get victory and save his people. He will ransom them. He will call them back. He will bring them home. And truly, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit delighted in accomplishing this great rescue plan. In the New Testament, the Savior's name was Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's what Matthew says. But before the joyful reception of heaven, Jesus would have to absorb God's wrath and anger against evil on the cross. This was the cost of rescuing his people. Have you been rescued? Are you saved? Have you found shelter under him? God delights to rescue people. According to the Bible, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Do you see your need to repent? To turn from yourself to Jesus? God delights to rescue people who repent. Come find me afterwards. We can chat if you're interested and you need this repentance I'm talking about. Today is the day. Don't put it off. Today is the day. Now we move into the heart of this passage, and language will fail us very quickly here. You'll need your imaginations, you'll need to be putting on your thinking helmets, and you'll need some faith to crack this text. Look at verse 17, right in the middle, where we see that God delights in us. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Here's a promise that is yet in the future, but once again, I believe it must be understood because we're united to Christ. Okay? This picture is found in other passages as well, but the theme here is simple. God himself, now English is going to fail us here, but he joys in happiness over us. Okay? That's not great English. But he joys, he exalts, he's happy over us. His heart is glad, it's merry, it's, it's cheerful over us. Look at the language. He will rejoice, joy, over you with gladness, happiness. Now the same theme is reinforced by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 62, where he says this, The nations shall see your righteousness, and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God, like a crown. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her. And your land married, for the Lord delights in you. And your land shall be married, for as a young man marries a young woman, here's the picture of marriage union, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Do you believe that? I mean, seriously, this could change everything if we really believe this. So I'm saying to you, and Scripture is very clear, that God delights in His people. He rejoices and actually praises us. 
Oh, you say, oh, you stepped over the line there, pal. You said praise. I'm telling you, it's in the Bible. Listen, a few more verses for you. I honestly wouldn't teach this if it wasn't in the scriptures. But I actually think if we get a hold of it, it could ignite our hearts and warm our hearts to such a degree that seriously some things will not matter to us anymore. Because this is true of us. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in the darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. There is coming a day when God will praise and cheer over all his people. You say, my, my view of God, this is, this is twisting me all up backwards. This isn't my view of God. I think he's mean. I think he's mad at me. I think he's grudging. But listen, if Jesus went through the cross for you and you're united to him, there's no more wrath left. It's all, it's all been exhausted on Christ. There's pleasure now. There's delight now. There's enjoyment and peace and hope and happiness now. Now, if you want more proof, look into more texts in the New Testament. Romans 2, 29. I'll just give you a couple texts if you want to look them up, if you need more proof. 2 Corinthians 10, 18. See, this requires faith, doesn't it? 1 Thessalonians 2, 4. Approval from God. Scripture clearly supports the idea that God actually praises his people. And it makes us uncomfortable because we know how unworthy we are. But we're connected to Jesus. And thus he does delight in us because he delights in his son. Listen to C.S. Lewis. He puts it so delicately and skillfully. The promise of glory is the promise. Almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ. That some of us, that any of us who really chooses shall actually survive the examination shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work, or as a father delights in his son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. Hard to believe. But so it is. And friends, if this is true, why in the world do we lose sleep when people reject us or gossip about us or put a smear campaign out on us? Who cares? The Lord of time and space approves, praises, and rejoices over everyone who is in Jesus. So aren't you happy that you're in Jesus? His praise ought to be the only one we're living for, friends. Are you in Jesus? Get in. Get in. He will take delight in you. And you will be satisfied. Why, why are you running away from him? Come. Come in. Now, I'm sure at this point you've had enough of my screaming. Oh, thanks, Jalen. <laughs> That's my son. <laughs> You've had enough nourishment to call it a day and go home and think about these things. 
But we have two more phrases to pull apart, and they are sweet. Once again, they're overwhelming. In the next phrase, we see that God delights to love in, to love us. He will quiet you by his love, or he will rest in his love. Commentators have had a hard time finding the meaning of this text. But it's hard to miss the import or the significance of this text, isn't it? There is a sense I get when I come to this verse that says, oh, this verse will turn the world upside down. Oh, this verse will change everything. He will quiet you by his love. It gives us images that our brains cannot connect. They fail, they fail, they fail. And if only our brains and our hearts could go up together and grow together, but they fail. Yet, I think every true Christian will long to know what this means. Don't you? Oh God, teach us what this means. What does it mean that you will quiet me by your love? Do you want to know? Is it that God calms and soothes us with his love? I'm not sure. Ever since I've stumbled upon this verse about six years ago, I've longed to know its meaning and its application for my life. I'm convinced that if this verse gets properly connected to my brain and to my heart, it'll change my parenting, it'll change my relationships, it'll change everything. If only our hearts could catch up to these words, friends. So I'm going to step aside and let the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, explain and apply this text to our hearts. Listen to his reflections on this verse. Just this little phrase. He says this, I do not know any scripture which is more full of wonderful meaning than this. He shall rest in his love. As if our God had in his people found satisfaction. He comes to an anchorage. He has reached his desire. As when a Jacob full of love to Rachel has at length ended the years of his service and is married to his well-beloved and his heart is at rest. So it is spoken in parable of the Lord our God. Jesus sees of the travail of his soul when his people are won to him. He has been baptized with his baptism for his church, and he is no longer straitened or distressed, for his desire is fulfilled. The Lord is content with his eternal choice, content with his loving purposes, satisfied with the love which went forth from everlasting. He is well pleased in Jesus well pleased with all the glorious purposes which are connected with his dear son and with those who are in him. He has a calm content in the people of his choice as he sees them in Christ. This is a good ground for our having a deep satisfaction of heart also. We are not what we would be, but then we are not what we shall be. We advance slowly, but then we advance surely. The end is secured by omnipotent grace. It is right that we should be discontented with ourselves, yet this holy restlessness should not rob us of our perfect peace in Christ Jesus. If the Lord hath rest in us, shall we not have rest in him? If he rests in his love, cannot we rest in it? Are you resting in his love?
let your heart rest in his love today. If he rests in his love, can't you rest in it? So we've explored some deep waters in this text, and now you know that this text cannot be exhausted. And we come to the final promise now that will lead us into song. But once again, you may be shocked with the extravagant language that the Bible uses. Here we see that God delights to sing over us. The end of the verse, He will exalt over you with loud singing. A quick review of this book will help us to conclude here. In chapter 1, verse 7 and 8 of Zephaniah, the prophet told the people to be silent because judgment day was coming. And the Lord uses the imagery, the language of the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's sacrifice. The judgment will be a sacrifice. Then we fast forward to chapter 314 where he calls the people to sing. And now in our text, we see that God himself is singing. He's singing over us. So we've gone from silence, and the silence has been broken, and now there's singing. We go from mourning to dancing. What happened? What gives? We've gone through the day of the Lord's sacrifice, haven't we? We've come through judgment into joy. And those who sought God in humility were sheltered from his sacrifice by his sacrifice. How? Back then, they didn't see what we know now. We, don't, we see the big picture now. They didn't see it then. But today, we understand. The pattern of Zephaniah is the pattern of salvation. We only enter into joy because the sacrifice of another was made. We only see God's face delighting in us because God turned his back on his son on the cross. He poured out his soul in, out of anguish. He shall see, Isaiah 53 says, and his soul shall be satisfied. He made an offering. Jesus made an offering of himself. And we only see God's face delighting in us once we've come under the shelter of of Jesus Christ who was sacrificed for us. The sacrifice was offered and judgment came down on another. As Ephesians 5.2 says, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. God sings over us because his anger was exhausted on his son on the cross on the day of the Lord's sacrifice. And since we're united to him, God relates to us with that sheer delight that he has in his obedient son. He's delighted in his son and with everyone who's in him. If you're a Christian, in a moment, we're going to sing to God. Sing to God for joy because he's rescued you. And check it out. One day... That day is coming where the song will change and the song leader will change. And God himself will take the stage and he will be singing over you with loud singing. Because God himself 
delights in us, his people. Do you think this God can satisfy you? If so, go now and delight yourself in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, your word is uh, incredibly sweet. Too much for us to take in, Lord. Help us to believe these truths. And I pray that we would properly understand this text and properly relate to you through Jesus. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do something in our hearts. All of us need you. In Jesus' name.